support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarro Media from just £1 a month. A regular donation helps us to plan our future and be even more ambitious with our coverage of news, politics, culture and the really big ideas that you'll always find on our podcasts. So please consider joining us and become a regular supporter from just £1 a month by heading to navaramedia.com forward slash support. Why do sex scandals capture the public attention like almost nothing else? From the wives of Roman emperors to the likes of Hugh Edwards, we've always been fascinated by the idea of someone's sex life being the cause of their downfall. But what does sex have to do with political corruption? Where does the balance between privacy and public interest lie? And are there things which we simply don't need to know about the intimate lives of powerful people? And look, it's important to say from the outset that I'm grouping a lot of different things under the imperfect term sex scandal. In some cases, I'm talking about black legend, lies which have been deliberately fabricated and spread around in order to destroy somebody's reputation. In other instances, I'm talking about something that's true, a feature of somebody's private life that's deeply embarrassing to them when it's exposed. And sometimes I'm talking about real cases of abuse, exploitation and harm done by powerful people. And normally I wouldn't call things like that a sex scandal because it's minimizing and it lumps together consensual activity with abuse. But really, there isn't a better word or phrase overall for information about people's sex lives that, when made public, has the potential to alter the course of powerful institutions or even history. So with me to discuss the history of sex scandals is Navarro Media's very own Stephen Methven. Let's get into it. Hi, Stephen, our resident expert in deviance. Hey, Ash, thanks very much. <laughs> Just a job title I wanted. <laughs> um, it is your official job title as well. It was contained in the description. Um, so I thought that maybe we could open with, what is the first sex scandal that you can personally remember? All right, so this is going to uh, give away lots of things about my age. But um, I thought the first one I could remember was the Monica Lewinsky mm. scandal. Um, which shouldn't even be called the Monica Lewinsky scandal, right? It's the 50-year-old president seduces a 20-year-old intern scandal. Um, but then as I was thinking about this, I unpeeled like another geological layer of memory. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized that the first one I actually remember is much earlier. And it's the Fergie toe-sucking <gasps> photographs. Okay, because some of our viewers might be a little young to remember... Fergie, as anyone who isn't a member of the Black Eyed Peas, right? Okay, so this is a this this is a Fergie that predates that Fergie. So this is Sarah Ferguson, who's the Duchess of York. She's the wife of Prince Andrew, and she has separated from him. Um, and she's in Texas, I think. And it's a Texan millionaire who is photographed kissing her feet as she lies on a sun lounger, <laughs> and. I remember at the time, like being split two ways about this photograph. On the one hand, I thought they were ancient, disgusting, <laughs> and embarrassing. Um, I mean, you know, Fergie's probably like in her thirties at that point, uh, so not that old at all. But there was another part of me that was sort of really swept up in the kind of glamour of the picture because here we have a duchess who is, uh, you know, sprawled on a sun lounger, fleeing the dictionary definition of the spare. The bad <laughs> prince who 
obviously we now know is a lot worse than we thought he was then. And at her feet is a Texan millionaire cowboy <laughs> who knows that he's not good enough to do anything else than kiss her feet. So it was giving Mills and Boone and Barbara Cartland. It's like, you know what? We're still a serious country. Yeah. <laughs> We're still a serious country. And America still must prostrate itself, you know, literally at the feet of our duchesses. I mean, my first sex scandal was Clinton Lewinsky. And that was what, 90... Eight, 99? I, th- I think it's like 98. I think the, the affair goes from 95 to 97. So I think it's just... So it was that. 98 and I was about six years old and I was watching it on the news. And it was obviously really explicit, even though it was sort of dressed up in the BBC News at 10 language. It was really quite explicit. And that's how Bill Clinton ended up being my first ever celebrity impersonation because oh, <laughs> I was six years old going into school. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Um, you still got it. I still got it. Still got the Clinton. But I didn't know what any of these things were. So I knew that he'd spilt something on her dress. Didn't know what it was. Didn't really know what sexual relations were. But I knew that there was something outside of the ordinary that was going on. And then as I got older, I found it, you know, kind of funny and I guess participated to some extent in the climate of humiliation, which had just totally dogged Monica Lewinsky. And then I was like, wait, hang on. She was a 20, 21 year old intern. I mean, especially now I look back at me when I was 20, 21, it's like, that is a baby. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I remember such an air of uh, disapproval of her. Mm. Um, And I mean, like, you know, also largely created by by the media um, and by Democrats themselves in order to protect the president, uh, but was really taken up by all the people that I knew, all the adults I knew. I mean, I was a, a, a young adult at the time, but all the older adults I, I, I knew, uh, who, yeah, she was the she was the target of of that scandal. Because people looked at her and went, "That's a trashy woman." Yeah. Right? Men can be men, and you know, men can be thirsty, and men can be motivated by their baser instincts. But the thing is, a woman you're supposed to do is to not give them the opportunity. Right. And she did, and that was her her sin. Yeah. I guess it was also always a comparison with Hillary Clinton as well, the loyal mm. wife, you know, taking her, uh, t- you know, taking a page straight out of like the Republican wife playbook and standing by her man and remaining stoically silent as everything uh, was revealed. Well, I, the thing that I remember reading is that after this all emerged, Hillary didn't speak to Bill for months um, and only did when it was to tell him to, you know, bomb Serbia. (laughs) It was like, I will forgive you if you bomb Serbia. do this one little thing for me. (laughs) I mean, the basis of every healthy relationship. Um, So we're talking about sex scandals. It's obviously an imperfect term because we're talking about things that range from the legal, the permissible, the understandable, all the way to the criminal and the harmful. We're talking about things which aren't true. We're talking about things that are true. So just to give this a bit more structure, let's start with the stuff which isn't true. Okay. Sexual libels. And for me, when I think of sexual libels, I think about ancient Rome. I think about Messalina and Agrippina. So can you tell us who these women were? Yeah. So um, Messalina is the third wife of the emperor Claudius, who 
is the fourth emperor in the uh, Julio-Claudian dynasty. So the first dynasty of imperial Rome that starts with Augustus Caesar, then Tiberius, then Caligula, then Claudius. What a family. What a family. Um, and Messalina is an important figure because she is actually the mother of Claudius's only biological heir, Britannicus, uh, who you may not have heard of because he, surprise, surprise, he drops out of the picture at some point. <laughs> Um, but Messalina is recorded by writers who come after uh, the end of this dynasty as being a woman of incredible sexual appetites. Uh, she's described as prostituting herself in the streets of Rome. Uh, she's also thought to be uh, a kind of vindictive murderess of uh, rival love rivals as well as political rivals. Uh, so she has a pretty pretty bad reputation, and um, in brief, what happens is that uh, she eventually, according to, to the writer, and the writers I'm talking about here are Suetonius and Tacitus. Uh, according to these authors, she falls in love with a senator called Silius, and Claudius goes off to Ostia, which is about twenty kilometers away from Rome. And while he while he's away, she decides to marry her lover Silius, and they have this quite elaborate wedding. And um, and in in wedding this man, she divorces the emperor. And this is of course a complete humiliation and an outrage. And lots of reasons are given for why she might have done this. One of which is that she's trying to uh, make Silius the emperor and then secure the next the next um, um, the next role for her for her son Britannicus. Another is that Claudius is he's not a very popular emperor. He's kind he's kind of rubbish in lots of ways. He likes a drink. Uh, he's pretty bloodthirsty himself. Uh, another thought is that you know he's he's falling out of fashion with with the Roman people and so and with various powerful figures. And so she jumps into this marriage with the senator to save herself and to save her son. I mean, there is this story about Messalina which gets told later on, which is that she enters into a shagging competition against the most famous and sought-after prostitute in the whole of Rome, and she wins. And that is a real theme of what you find in Tacitus and in Suetonius, because, I, by the way, I thought the classics were dry as fuck and I never read them. And then I did when I got to uni. I was like, wait a minute, everyone is boning. Um, and they say, they, they put it in ways which I think are quite damning, which is her passion broke through the last restraints of decency and prudence. Um, you know, she had been content with the usual excesses of a profligate age with the secrecy of the palace the, or the freedom of the brothel. They're really going for her on the basis of sex. And so why is it sex? Why is it that sex and her sexual appetites, and this marriage is the way in which she's being, I guess, demeaned and brought down? So I think an interesting question to, to ask is who is do, doing the demeaning and who is doing the bringing down? And maybe we'll, we'll come back to that when we talk about Agrippina, who comes next. Um, but I think sex is important here because Roman women, especially imperial women, were not supposed to be into sex. They're supposed to be pretty pious. They're supposed to be pretty silent. Uh, they're supposed to be handmaids to the king. Um, and the idea of... Um, a queen 
having competitions with a prostitute or as um, Suetonius puts it, she prostituted her person in the common stews and even in the public streets of the capital. You know, so one, the idea that she might be wandering around looking for, uh, for, for paying company um, is a complete affront to the, to the picture of not only a queen, but also the mother of a potential emperor. So it discredits her and discredits the, po- the son that might become the emperor in the future. I mean, is that the core of it, which is if you, if you demonize this woman as having these excessive sexual appetites, you then go, well, maybe Britannicus isn't even Claudius's. I mean, that's a possibility. Actually, in the Roman Empire, it didn't really matter that much whether someone... I mean, there's a habit of emperors adopting family members who then become the next emperor. So, for example, Tiberius is not the son of Augustus. Caligula is not the son of Tiberius. Claudius the first is- son of an emperor to be born to the purple is... Commodus, son of Marcus Aurelius. Right. I think. But you've got to wait a really long time to get there. Yeah. I mean, Nero is the great-grandson of Augustus, so there is some kind of more direct lineage there, and Nero Nero is going to come after Claudius. But yeah, it's, it's, it's not a straightforwardly patrilineal society. But it's still nonetheless the case that Nobody wants someone born from the common stews to be to be accidentally the the, the emperor. So but I think I think I was just going to say. But I think it is also about. Uh, it's not just about questions of um, of birthright, but also questions of of improprieties. Questions of you know what 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 is the standing of this potential heir to the to the imperial throne? I mean, if there is a mother like that. Can the son be trusted with the powers of the of the empire? What about Agrippina? Because she, you know, follows very shortly after Messalina. She's the mother of Nero, and she helps elbow Britannicus out of the way in the line of succession. Yeah, so Agrippina the younger is actually very noble. She is a direct descendant of Augustus. Um, and Claudius's connection to Augustus is rather tenuous. So when she marries, when, sorry, when he marries Agrippina, he kind of secures his, his position as being rightfully emperor, or, or, or at least strengthens that, that position. Um, so she's been married before, and she has a son, Nero. And um, she's also the biological niece of Claudius. What? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, as um, Suetonius reports, uh, when he was meditating his incestuous marriage with Agrippina, he was perpetually calling her, my daughter, my nursling, born and brought up upon my lap. Oh. Yeah. When Suetonius is writing that, is he writing that in a way which goes, and that's gross? Or were the norms at the time Suetonius was writing, were they a bit different? No, I think it was, I think an incestuous marriage was pretty scandalous and scandalous. I mean, Suetonius calls it an incestuous mm-hmm. uh, marriage. Um, but still, Claudius manages to convince the Senate to allow him to have this marriage because he argues that it will be to the benefit of Rome. And I think what he means is that it would to be, to be to the benefit of his sort of um, imperial position. Um, so Agrippina comes along. So just a bit of backstory on Agrippina. So under the under the um, reign of Caligula, the previous empire, she's caught up in a very serious plot to have him assassinated. He doesn't last very long anyway. He's not very like less than four years, I think, as, as emperor <laughs> before he's murdered. Um, so 
she's caught up in this plot to assassinate him and she is exiled and forced to leave Nero behind in Rome. And when Claudius comes into power, he uh, allows her to return to Rome and be reunited with her son. And there's a, a story that she goes to the Roman circus and the crowds applaud her and her son more than they applaud Messalina and Britann Britannicus. And Messalina is pretty annoyed by this. Um, so maybe we should just quickly talk about the, the, the killing of Messalina. Mm. So. Messalina has this has this wedding uh, to Silius while Claudius is out of town, um, and there's this great bit from Suetonius that I just wanted to to read because, you know, lots of ways in which you can interpret this was it a fake wedding? Is it a kind of you know folly, a party? And Suetonius wants to like you know, nail this down. And he says, the occasion was celebrated with a magnificent supper to which she invited a large company. And lest the whole should be regarded as a frolic, not meant to be consummated, the adulterous parties ascended the nuptial couch in the presence of the astonished spectators. So they basically get it on in front of the party to show <laughs> that this is for real. Um, and one of uh, Claudius's freedmen, so a former slave uh, who has been who has been freed, reports to him that this has happened. He returns to Rome and he is advised that Messalina should be killed. He gets a bit drunk. He starts to soften. He says, no, no, no. And then his guards take it into their own hands and they stab her to death uh, in, a, in a garden. Well, the way I read it was that they sort of go to Messalina and go, look, you should really kill yourself. And she's like, I'm not sure if I have it in me. And they're like, we all help you kill yourself. Yeah, there's that ver yeah, that's a version as well. I think her mother is advising her to kill herself. I can't remember who the advisor mm. is, but she can't she can't do it and then she, someone drives a sword through through her. Um but it's not clear that it's on Claudius's orders, mm. although when it's then reported that she's dead, apparently he just orders some more wine. Um Oh, I guess you'd need a drink after that. Right. <laughs> um, but like so so Agrippina is being celebrated by the people of Rome. She is a granddaughter or, of Augustus. Um, she's got this son called Nero and she ends up marrying Claudius. But rather than this being the kind of ascension of a wife who is, you know, to quote the wife of a different Caesar, above suspicion, she ends up getting smeared by sexual scandal as well. It's different from Messalina, but she starts being portrayed as someone who has got these, you know, unnatural sexual appetites. Um, what, what were they? Well, so there are accusations of incest with her son Nero. Yeah, so this is from Tacitus. Uh, Cluvius relates that Agrippina, in her eagerness to retain her influence, went so far that more than once at midday, when Nero, even at that hour, was flushed with wine and feasting, she presented herself attractively attired to her half-intoxicated son and offered him her person, and that when kinsfolk observed wanton kisses and caresses, portending infamy, it was Seneca who sought a female's aid against a woman's fascination and hurried in acti, the freed girl. So sent in somebody to, to um, stand in for her once she'd got Nero excited, I think is the meaning of that. Um, and so this might sound like a really stupid question. How much of this is true? I think this is a, a, a really interesting question. So, you know, one thing that happens to Messalina after she's, she's killed is that there is a decree that she should be entirely removed from the public memory. So statues of her are destroyed. Her name is dashed out of... Uh, you know, um, engravings, images are, are, are destroyed. 
so yeah, she's she's erased. And there's a question about whether Agrippina is behind that because she marries Claudius just six months after the the the, the murder of Messalina, um, and obviously she has a great interest in uh, securing Nero, her own son, uh, as the next emperor, so displacing Britannicus. Um, and one interesting thing about Agrippina is that she leaves behind a memoir. And I think I read somewhere that she it's she's the only person in sort of the ancient world to have left a memoir, which is the only source that Tacitus cites in mm. his writing. Uh, the only the only written source that he, that he cites. So Agrippina has sort of quite a lot a lot of control over the history of Messalina at at, at that at that point. So she's able to say, my man's ex was a total slut. And it, everyone's like, well, it's written it, down. It's there <laughs> you know, in stone tablet or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, so Tacitus and Suetonius, wh- when are they writing? So they're writing after the end of this uh, dynasty. So the, the uh, Julio-Claudians come to an end with Nero, who commits suicide. Then there's a sort of war. And then there's a new appointment of a... Uh, an emperor, Vespavian, who is the first of the Flavians, which is a short dynasty. Um, It's him and then his two sons. And so they're writing during the beginnings of the Flavian Empire. And part of their job, you might think, is to sort of, in a sense, curry favor with with this new empire, with the new emperor, but also to secure it as legitimate. And that's a way of currying favor. So you imagine a kind of Roman society where there's been one dynasty and the politics are set up around patronage of that dynasty. A new one sweeps in, there's a political vacuum to be filled. There's also a question of legitimacy, convincing people that you know, these are legitimate emperors. And one way to do that is to discredit the previous dynasty to say, actually, these are upright people who are saving you from the torrid uh, appetites of the previous lot. I mean, I was thinking as I was um, researching for the show that is there something here to do with dynastic politics? So if you've got a family controlling the seat of power, and this is the thing about the imperial palace, everything was coming out of it. Every decision, every you know, policy, every intrigue was coming out of this monstrous hybrid of family home and, you know, seat of power. And so because all politics is in a sense familial politics, and you've got the kind of the legitimate face of that being marriage and the adoption of children, you know, legitimate children, the dark face of that is sexual impropriety. Of some kind. So if you want to explain a corrupt political system, which the Julio-Claudian dynasty most certainly was, well, then you have to go, well, well, sex is at the heart of it. It's a form of sexual corruption. So it's a thought you have to sort of strike at the family picture, which is at the centre of the of the political p- picture in order to, to articulate the kind of corruption that's going on politically. Yeah, because, you know, Messalina probably didn't have a, a shagging competition. Agrippina probably wasn't in an incestuous relationship with her son. And so I'm like, well, why is that the story we tell? Yeah, I think that's that's interesting. I mean, I think, I th- I think it's also, you know, one of the interesting things about Agrippina is that she's incredibly powerful. Um, and under Claudius, you know, she really like takes control and is operating as 
in a sense, as a man would, would only a man would be allowed to operate in these circumstances. So she makes decisions. She uh, she basically runs the empire under Claudius. She tries to do the same under Nero, and he's not having it. Um, so I think there's also something about uh, in the Roman imagination, powerful women or women, which is really distasteful. Mm. Um, women aren't supposed to be powerful. In fact. I, th I read somewhere that it was a sort of Roman thought that it was dangerous to give women power because they were, would be more tyrannical than men. <laughs> and and, the, and so in some ways, these stories about these women who had power makes them more tyrannical than men, makes them more repetitive than, than men um, in a way which is reinforcing the sin of allowing women anywhere near power. I mean, I, I want to talk very briefly on men having sexual relationships with men in imperial rome because the attitudes were different the long and short of it is that it was seen as quite normal for an older man and a younger man to have a sexual relationship and that was almost part of this young man's education and and socialization into public life and public office but it was not seen as okay to be the receiving partner if right. you're a man and even someone like Julius Caesar, who we think of like as a real gallist. I mean, like you've got Calpurnia, Cleopatra, um, you know, siring sons absolutely everywhere. Um, you've got Julius Caesar being disparagingly known in contemporary graffiti at the time as the Queen of Bithynia, because the idea was that he was having an affair with a client king out in the provinces, the king of Bithynia, and he was the receiving partner. And so that was very like, no, 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 no. Um, you had Hadrian, who was, I think, pretty safe to say that though he was married to a woman, he was almost certainly gay, right? Um, to an extent that was seen as distasteful or not, not quite all right. But the fact is, is that many of these Roman emperors had men who were lovers, and that was just seen as fine. So what was the line between like a scandalous relationship with a man and a kind of fine one? Well, I suppose what makes the, 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 the graffiti about Julius Caesar uh, politically potent is that there's a suggestion of political dominance in that relationship, right? Um, I mean, you know, I don't know, you know, Claudius is described by, I think, Suetonius, maybe both Suetonius and Tacitus, as being, uh, you know, too easily influenced by his freedmen, which might be, you know, a suggestion that there was, you know, some some kind of attachment to these men, which was stronger than what it ought to be. But it's not politically, I mean, it's it's it only becomes politically important when it's a question of influence rather than affection. Uh, so, you know, I guess, I guess the thought is that, um, you know, for the for the for the for, 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 for the satisfaction of male desires, all things are okay so long as there's no threat to the power, political power that 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 person holds. And when there's a suggestion of a threat to the political power that that person holds, then you start to get the kind of graffiti that Julius Caesar. Is there a certain irony that maybe in some ways? that was a more progressive position to hold than the one that we've got now. I mean, we're going to talk about Philip Schofield and Hugh Edwards yeah. a bit later on, but that it was simply enough that they were involved with younger men and that was wrong and that was bad. But it wasn't really about the suggestion of undue influence being wielded unless it was on the part of these older men. Whereas in ancient Rome, it was like, look, shag who you want, but leave the Roman coffers intact, please. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's also interesting that in ancient Rome, and like you know, you may not agree with this, but it, it, it's um, these kind of when there's a scandal, it attaches to people who who really matter, who really have political power. Like in the in the Schofield and Edwards case, not clear to me that that's the case at all. Uh, I mean, they're familiar and they're well known, but they're not they're not political figures. So, in in some sense, I think yeah, it's 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 there is something that's uh, something that's more serious, which is about pursuing these cases when there's an when political power is or power in general is, is in you know and wider than just interpersonal power when power is uh, in question and when there's a question of influence over how that power is being being used. Um, whereas I think in a lot of these cases, it's like it's not very clear <laughs> to me that there is such an, an interesting question about that in the contemporary world. I want to I want to shuffle us along quite dizzyingly through history. So we're going to skip like a thousand years, um, and I want to sort of compare two figures, if that's okay. So one is Lucrezia Borgia, and the other is Marie Antoinette. I'm sure everyone's already familiar with, but Lucrezia Borgia was part of a very powerful. This is Renaissance Roman family called the Borgias. You may have seen there was like a kind of trashy TV show, but I love all those period dramas. So of course I watched it. Um, and she was part of this family where they gained power through bribery and assassinations and strategic marriages. I believe she was married more than once first when she was very young and the Borgias were able to, you know, get a Pope in there, which was a very big deal. Very big deal. You wanted to have a Pope the same way you wanted a son to be an emperor. You wanted a Pope. Um, and the Borgia Pope very openly had loved children who he then treated as legitimate children and tried to marry off into powerful families. And there has been something of what's called the black legend of the Borgias. So the version of the Borgias that we can remember are people who would poison you soon as look at you and they were shagging everybody. And there was quite similarly to some of the ancient Roman cases we're talking about accusations of incest between Lucrezia and her father um, Lucrezia and uh, Cesare. Her brother. Her brother. Um, and it's kind of at odds with how she was known at the time. So we know Lucrezia is this woman of, you know, um, Machiavellian powers and someone who, again, had these very unnatural sexual appetites. But she was known as a very pious woman uh, by the time of her death. Um, so how did we get stuck with the black legend of Lucrezia? Why is that the one we remember? Because it's a better story. <laughs> it's a much better story than the real one. I mean, I think what you have to remember about the Borgias, the sort of most important feature of them is that they're foreign. They're from they're from Spain. They're from Aragon. And um, uh, Alexander VI is the second uh, Borgia Pope. He's the nephew of um, a previous Pope, but sort of 40 years prior to his um, um, ascension to the papacy. Uh, and yeah, he's got these four illegitimate children who he legitimizes. Uh, he just you know claims them as his kids. He's open about it. He's not the first Pope and he's not the last Pope to have kids or to be open about it. But I think what really uh, sets the Borgias apart and Alexander VI apart, is that he is so ambitious for his family. He is excommunicating people, right, left, and center, grabbing their property and handing it out to his kids. He is forcing his kids into dynastic marriages, which are politically important for him. And uh, Lucretia is in three of those 
marriage is. Uh, like the Elizabeth Taylor of her time. Well, except she starts when she's like 13, mm. which is, um, uh, yeah, not not um, not what you want. Mm. Uh, but also, I guess, I don't think uncommon at that mm. time. Um, yeah, so she's married off first to uh, one dude who is politically convenient. Uh, he's also kind of, he's related to somebody who helped uh, Alexander VI become the Pope. So there's sort of possibility of a kind of trade here. And, um, but after a couple of years, it's decided that actually there's a more advantageous marriage for her. So uh, the marriage has to be annulled. Um, and so in order to be annulled, it has to be shown that it was never consummated. And so Alexander VI basically tries to pressurize the husband into saying, you couldn't consummate it. You're impotent. <laughs> and this <laughs> husband was like, absolutely not. No way. And, uh, and instead, I think he spreads the rumor that actually uh, the Pope wants this annulment because he wants Lucrezia for himself because it's like some kind of incestuous entanglement. Um, anyway, the annulment goes through. She's then married to another guy, another sort of important family connection. He is murdered by her brother, um, Cesare, um, well, he's the most likely candidate for having 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 murdered him. So there are, you know, there, so there are actually murders here. There's another person that Cesare is accused of of murdering, who is a potential lover of Lucrezia at one point. Um, yeah, I mean, they did do a lot of murder. They did a lot of murder. But I don't. I mean, Cesare certainly did. Was murdering. it an unusual amount of murdering for a, an Italian Renaissance family? That that I, I don't I don't know. Um, I mean, Cesare has sort of murdered his own brother, which I think may be a bit extra. Even <laughs> Leave it out. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but I don't know. But I know that that one thing you know. So one thing that Lucrezia is accused of is of being a kind of arch poisoner. And she's supposed to have this ring, which uh, either is hollow inside and she can sort of discreetly poison whoever she likes, or it has a spike on it that she can kind of stab people with and poison them that way. And the source of that legend is not really is not really clear. I mean, people at the time were absolutely paranoid about poisoning. You know, if someone got sick and died, there are no autopsies. Nobody really knows what they're looking for. And so poison is, you know, poison and plots are the sort of... Um, um, the, you know, the, 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 what drives sort of Roman gossip, I suppose. At the well, time. it's also poison is a weapon which implies some kind of intimacy because it's in food or it's in drink and it means that someone was your guest or you were hosting them. So they were, you know, they had let their guard down to some extent and then they're, they're murdered. I mean, I didn't realise that Lucrezia was accused of having a poison ring. Yeah. Because there's a poem by Robert Browning called At the Apothecaries, where there's a woman who's very jealous that her um, lover's gone off with someone else. And I think she either buys a poison ring or um, just sees one in the shop. And she gets, she almost gets kind of like erotically excited by being in this like poison shop. Um, and she's just like, oh, that's cute. That's cute. Can tell you like that. <laughs> and then she like goes off to the dance where they're all at and she's like, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> Um, but the reason why I wanted to, to compare Lucrezia Borgia to Marie Antoinette, and obviously there's a big period of time, very different contexts here, but we've been stuck with the black legend of Lucrezia. So we don't like to believe Lucrezia, the 
perhaps pious poisoner, so someone who did take her religion and her faith very seriously, did some murdering, but who didn't in Renaissance Italy, um, to Marie Antoinette, who I think in the popular imagination, yes, she may have been frivolous, yes, she may have been callous, saying, let them eat cake, but the incest accusations that were leveled at Marie Antoinette, the sexual libels that were leveled at her by, you know, the likes of, you know, the French revolutionary Danton, they haven't really stuck. So could you maybe explain what the sexual libels against Marie Antoinette were and maybe come up with an explanation for why we don't see her that way? Yeah, so this, the the sexual libels are um, a series of publications that emerge in France after, I think, the storming of the Bastille uh, by revolutionary forces. So at the beginning of the sort of the the, the 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 hot phase of the French Revolution, and they are pretty graphic depictions of her involved in uh, lesbian scenes with other noble women, uh, organizing orgies um, in in Versailles. Well, it's a big um, enough place. <laughs> it's a bit, plenty of space and lots of mirrors. Lots of mirrors. Um, and these, some of them are in writing, some of them are drawing because, you know, it's not uh, necessarily a very literate society. Uh, so the, the drawings in particular um, spread to a wider audience. Uh, and what's interesting them, about them is that when she is eventually brought to trial, um, uh, she's charged with a number of um, crimes which are based on these libels which were passed around Um passed around the the, 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 the people people of, of, of Paris and France um, and um, also she's charged with having an incestuous relationship with her eight-year-old son mm. um, and I mean I you know her response to that is that that's that she can't possibly even entertain the question that she's being asked and I think actually that charge sort of Seems to backfire. It seems to be it's a, you know it's a step too far to have laid that that charge against her. Even then, nonetheless, she is found uh, guilty of various treasonous charges, and of course, she's executed. Um, but yeah, why haven't those stuck? I mean, I think what's interesting about the difference between the time at which the Borgias are living and the time at which Marie Antoinette is uh, living is you know three hundred years, and the dissemination of information has changed a lot in that time. Um, one of the reasons the legends, the black legend of the Borgias persists is that the Pope who comes in after Alexander VI is also their worst enemy. Mm. Uh, That'll do it. And Yeah. And once something gets written down then and sort of spreads, there aren't really, there's not really a kind of process of challenging the, uh, the, the, the literature. Uh, because it's limit, there's limited literature, but of course, by the end of the 18th century, that's that's a little bit different, I think. And people are writing opinions all the time. Things are being published, and I mean, I don't know the the historiography here, but but it it may well be that there are defenders of Marie Antoinette, not just in France but elsewhere, who are who are writing things against the libels, against the against the case, so that the information is beginning to flow and be transmitted much more quickly than it is in, in the case of the Borgias. I mean, I suppose Marie Antoinette, even at the time of her death, had very powerful friends and family That's true. in the other European monarchies. And the other European monarchies are looking at France going, 
oh, that's very bad. I would rather not lose my head as these, you know, democratic values become popularized and disseminated elsewhere. Of course, um, you know, Marie Antoinette's family tried to launch an invasion of France to try and overturn the work of the revolution. And so you've got this other power base, which is trying to say, no, 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 these populists, these great unwashed, these, you know, sans culottes, they're they're wrong. And actually, these are like divinely anointed monarchs and you should respect them. So there's a kind of counter story to that. But another one, not Marie Antoinette, Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn also accused. So one thing that people often forget in the divorce, beheaded, died, blah, 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 is that Anne Boleyn was divorced before she was beheaded. Um, The marriage was annulled. And she was accused of having multiple affairs, which amounted to a form of treason, right? So to cheat on the king is kind of the same thing as plotting to kill him. And one of the affairs that she's accused of is one with her own brother. Again, something which is not true, but it's something which um, she's uh, accused of. Um, Her brother, of course, is also executed, I think, for the the crime of, of allegedly sleeping with his sister. We don't think about that very much. You know, we think about Anne Boleyn as kind of a a temptress and someone who, you know, engineers the discarding of Henry VIII's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, but we don't really think about her as a victim of sexual libel. Um, Is that because maybe that would, you know, undermine a sort of heroic reformation Henry VIII or what? I mean, we think of him as kind of grotesque, but kind of... He's one of the big dogs of the kings and queens of England. Yeah, I mean, I'm not really sure why that, uh, why we don't think of her in that way. I mean, you know, another way in which, I mean, she's the mother of Elizabeth Elizabeth I, mm-hmm. right? So maybe that's also another reason why we don't think of her in those terms is because she's she's the mother of one of the greatest monarchs, mm. you know, of all of all time. You know, I, I get what well, I guess that's the popular view, um, and so perhaps during that period. Uh, you know these sorts of um, libels are suppressed in, in in some way. I actually, I, I I I don't know. I mean, I actually didn't even know that story about about the brother. Oh, did you no. not? Um, because there was there was um, I think four men who were executed for allegedly having affairs with Anne Boleyn, um, her brother, and uh, some courtiers as well. Um, and she's obviously not the first. Well, she's not the last wife that's executed by Henry VIII. You've got um, Catherine Howard as well, except she probably did because she was young and she liked the musician who was flirting with her. Um, but there was this idea that with Anne Boleyn, you couldn't just discard her and you couldn't just kill her. You had to kill her reputation as well. Um, so I guess, you know, before we move on to, you know, sex scandals, which have some basis in truth, why... Is it sex that is used to murder the reputations of people in power? Or is it not people in power? Is it just women? Yeah, so far it's been largely women, right? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so only women. Um, and I guess, I mean, you know, if you think about the case of, just going back to Marie Antoinette for a, for a minute, it's kind of impossible to ruin a French king's reputation because of sex, because large sexual appetites and mistresses were part and parcel of 
the French court, right? The mistress was an official position in the court. Official and important, right? Because it also stopped the queen from having too much from having too much power and influence over the king. So, yeah, so they, you know, they're just there can't be a sex scandal like, involved. Go nuts, my son. Yeah, whatever you like. I mean, maybe, maybe if there had been a gay sex scandal, that might have been something that would have would have uh, uh, caused some trouble. Um, but I, but I, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know of any. Edward the Second. Well, in England, okay, right. But don't know any French gay sex scandals. Yeah. yeah maybe think, someone in the comments can can enlighten yeah, us as other French gay sex scandals pre-revolutionary France. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I suppose sex is used largely, well, heterosexual sex is used largely to discredit women who, um, royal women, noble women, who aren't supposed to be having sex except for really the production of heirs. Um, and when they do, then it makes the marriage look like a mistake. Well, it also then, it's coming back to this thing of dynastic politics, yeah. which is if you stop polluting the bloodline or if you've got excessive sexual appetites which means that you cast out on the legitimacy of an heir well that undermines the legitimacy of this entire dynasty political armageddon <laughs> <laughs> you know just really for that for that dynasty potentially uh, its end when people ask too many questions about whether their king is in fact descended you know descended from a line chosen by god would Sexual libel have been such a big deal for people who weren't of the nobility. So if you were part of, you know, the peasant or the merchant class and someone was like, I hear she's been giving it out all around the town, would that be such a big deal or would it just be a bit of social tutting and shunning but ultimately you can get along with your life? I think it probably varies from period to period, but I think in, in, in general, like we just don't have a lot of history about <laughs> how normal people, uh, the uh, further back you go, the worse it gets, the history of you know, how normal people lived and what, uh, uh, what would have been the consequences. But certainly, you know, there's, there's a kind of interpersonal thing of you know, a husband being embarrassed or humiliated by an affair. Um, a wife being, I mean, I guess these are cliches, uh, furious or angered by mm -hmm. an affair th and also economically threatened by, by, by um, the presence of another woman. Um, but there isn't a politics there that's, uh, you know, th there isn't an interest. I mean, maybe at the level of like, I don't know, small officials in, in towns, that's, you, know, start, you start to get like the political texture where these kind of libels can become fleetingly interesting as a way of knocking someone out of the spot and getting it for yourself or for an ally or something like that. Um, but certainly not having the same kind of gravity at all as the ones that involve the actual structure of the state. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at this point, in all the cases that we've discussed, discussed, sex is important for dynastic reasons and reasons of um, uh, inheritance of the, the throne and purity of the bloodline and so, so, so forth. So it's going to be interesting to understand why it is that sex is still interesting <laughs> because none of that matters anymore. Uh, I mean, in, you know, it matters to some extent to the royal family, but I'm, I don't care about that. But, um, but why are sex scandals still so alive in politics when it's not about, about dynasty? Well, maybe we can move into thinking about that by looking at sex scandals, which are either significantly or entirely based in truth. 
So there was actually a sex scandal that Marie Antoinette was tangentially involved with, and it became a massive deal. Um, so what was it? Okay, so this is um, involves a extremely expensive diamond necklace, like all of the best sexual escapades. <laughs> yeah, which I think, which I think was commissioned by so Marie Antoinette's husband Louis the Sixteenth, by his father for a mistress from this like Parisian jeweler, um, and he died before they managed to before he managed to get it or before it was completely made. Um, and then, okay, so now there are some names here that I have to read off the notes because otherwise I would not be able to do it. Um, so the star of the show is this extremely clever con woman <laughs> called Jeanne de Valois Saint-Rémy. So Jeanne. Wow, look at that GCSE French. impressed. <laughs> <laughs> so she becomes the mistress of a guy called Louis de Rohan, and he's the Cardinal of Strasbourg. Not so, meant to be shagging as a cardinal. Well, I think it's maybe, yes, I think probably he's not meant to be shagging <laughs> as a cardinal. Certainly it was okay a few hundred years earlier, but no, at this point, probably not. Um, and she, basically, she meets him at court in, in Versailles because she manages somehow to get herself in. And he has fallen out with Marie Antoinette. She has discovered that he has been bad-mouthing her. And I think he wrote a letter that wasn't very nice about uh, her mother. And so... Oh, not the mother. Not the mother. Um, the Empress of the Holy Roman Empire, is Ooh. what I say. Um, and so uh, she, uh, she is yeah, off, off speakers with uh, Louis de Rohan. Uh, and he wants to curry favor with her. And so Jeanne, this uh, con woman, meets him in Versailles and says, oh, I'm, I'm you know, busy mates with Marie Antoinette. <laughs> I can put in a word for you. And he says, yes, please. And he starts a correspondence with, he thinks, Marie Antoinette, but actually with Jeanne pretending to be Marie Antoinette. And this correspondence gets quite, quite steamy at some point, or at least warm, mm -hmm. and he falls in love with Marie Antoinette. And he asks Jeanne to organize a uh, liaison uh, <laughs> in the gardens at Versailles, and she employs a prostitute who looks a bit like Marie Antoinette oh to go in, uh, in the place of the queen. And so he meets with the prostitute, and apparently he gives her a rose, and she says all is forgiven, and he's now very pleased. And then Jeanne starts writing to uh, the Cardinal and says, as Marie Antoinette, and says, you know, I'd really like this necklace, <laughs> but because I have this reputation for prof profligacy, which is another sort of charge that's laid against Marie And that one was quite true. That one was pretty, pretty, pretty true. I mean, it's also the case that France is just bleeding money into the American Revolutionary War where it's supporting the revolutionaries. That's not something the French revolutionaries can sort of talk badly <laughs> about. Um, but yeah, she does spend a lot of money. Um, anyway, so she says, I want this, Jeanne posing as Marie Antoinette says, I want this necklace. Um, can you get it for me? You can take these letters, show, you know, saying that I will, I will make good on it, but I just can't pick it up myself. And he says yes, and he goes to the jewelers, and they give it to him. He then gives the necklace to someone who he believes is the valet of the queen. It is not the valet <laughs> of the queen. The necklace gets dismantled into all of its hundreds of jewels, which then gets sold on like international black markets and never seen again. Why is the scandal then a big deal for Marie Antoinette? Is it a big deal because she's like? How dare you use my name in this way? Or was it a big deal because people thought this reflected badly on her? It's a big deal because 
Louis XVI decides that the cardinal, uh, Louis Laurent, will be, should be prosecuted. And so there is a public trial where all of this story is sort of exercised. And Marie Antoinette is mentioned over and over again in the, in the course of the trial. And he is eventually acquitted, quite rightly. Um, I mean, guilty of being pretty stupid. But that's about <laughs> it. Uh, he's acquitted. But in the minds of the French, who already don't like mm. Marie Antoinette, she's a foreigner. She's not only a foreigner, she's from Austria, an old enemy. Uh, she's profligate, um, not good enough in various ways. It takes her seven years to have a child, you know, not a very good um, um, maker of heirs. Uh, it's, um, yeah, it sticks. And yeah, they sort of, she's forever associated with this, with this scandal. And although she's sort of recognized as blameless in a kind of rational sense, in an emotional and imaginary <laughs> sense, she really, really isn't. Well, it's also the way in which if you're thinking about this pre-revolutionary context and you're thinking about, you know, France is hamstrung by, you know, food inflation, very big deal at the time. You've got rampant inequality. You've got a court which operates in this very insular elite world and it's miles away um, you know, culturally and in terms of, you know, real life material experience from people who are being ruled by that court. It doesn't have to be a rational connection, as you say, but it draws this imaginative connection between Marie Antoinette and a prostitute. And you go, well, you're not miles away from each other in my view. Do you that, know what I mean? Yeah, that is a great is a great point. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. There's some there's some similarity here. There's even some similarity that allowed someone to think a prostitute was you. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's also one. You know, it's also the case that Marie Antoinette is. You know, she has this strange role of being incredibly public. You know, incredibly public in her image, but completely silent. She has no voice at all. She's really not allowed to speak. Um, so yeah, she's kind of like the perfect symbol onto which to project all of your hatred and anxiety. And you can't clap back on like Instagram stories. She can't, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I guess this is sort of the thing about, um, you know, marriage and prostitution, they've always been these mirrors of each other. So traditionally marriage wasn't really about love, wasn't even primarily about love. It was about securing and protecting property, land, wealth, power. And what is that if not a form of sex work or sexual labor? Sure, it has the sanction of the church, but it's not that different from prostitution. So if we're thinking about how these sex scandals are operating in terms of the imagination, you go, well, what's the difference between a queen and a sex worker? How much I like them. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. How, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what I think of them. <laughs> like, what do I think about them as an individual? Yeah. Um, moving on to another true sex scandal and moving a bit away from women, there was in the later half of the 19th century, a Cleveland Street scandal. And this was something I'd never heard about before you raised it before the show when we were talking about the things that we wanted to discuss. Um, and I found it fascinating. So could you tell us about it? Yeah, sure. In short, uh, it's 1889 and a gay brothel is uncovered in Fitzrovia and the sex workers in the brothel are 
telegraph boys. So they are running telegraphs from a central office between you know, lots of people, but also lots of members of the elite in London. And the clients are very elite, very establishment figures, even up to the son of the Prince of Wales, the second in line to the on second in line to the throne at the time. Um, and so the second in line to the throne was using the services of these very young male sex workers. Well, yeah, Prince Albert Victor is, is his name, and 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 this is um, this is a, a, a rumor. Uh, so. It's never published by the British press. It is published, actually, a lot by by the American press, who really go into you know really go after um, um, Albert Victor, um, who's now he's the son of the Prince of Wales, who would later be King Edward the Seventh, um, grandson of Victoria. Um, yeah, so 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 a, a veil is drawn over in the British media over his his connection to the brothel, but there are significant other figures. So one of them is Lord Somerset, who is the manager of the Prince of Wales stables, so a nobleman. Another is uh, the Earl of Euston, another member of the nobility, uh, and these figures are publicly publicly named, but. Nothing ever happens to them, really. Um, um, and actually, uh, and things do happen to uh, some of the Telegraph boys. And, you know, they are, well, one of them by our standards is underage. He's 15. Mm-hmm. But then there are two 17-year-olds and an 18-year-old. So so the, the three of them that I know of by, our, by today's standards wouldn't be underage. If you think about the age of consent in... Uh, 1889. It's 13 for girls. Mm-hmm. So obviously, and illegal for boys. I mean, complete. Well, illegal for boys if it's another boy. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, but um, but you know, there's a more concessive attitude towards the age of consent when it comes when it comes to girls. Um, so what so what happens here is how is this discovered? So the police are investigating some th- the theft of some money from the post office, and one telegraph boy, 15 year old. Uh, has more money in his pocket than he should have. And they ask, where did you get it from? And he says, oh, eventually he says, oh, I got it because, you know, from these men at this, at this place in Cleveland Street. And he turns in this guy called Charles Hammond, who is purported to run the brothel. Um, and also another uh, 18-year-old called Henry Newlove, a, a post office clerk who introduced him to um, Hammond. Um, so New Love is arrested. He names this Lord Arthur Somerset, who's the, the head of the stables. He also names Henry Fitzroy, the Earl of Euston. Um, and as I say, there's a suggestion that um, Prince Victor Albert, uh, sorry, Albert Victor was uh, there as well. Um, what's interesting is the New Love, this 18-year-old, goes to trial. He's defended by Lord Somerset's personal lawyer, um, Arthur Newton, uh, but he's given four months hard labor. Um, Somerset, on the other hand, flees the country. Um, Hammond, the brothel keeper, also escapes to France, then Belgium, then America. But here's what's very interesting. Um, Hammond is not extradited and no extradition proceedings are begun on the advice of the Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury. So this is where now the establishment starts to kind of do what it often does. Close ranks. Close ranks, circle in and, you know, huddle. Um, 
So Somerset, the the stable guy, was was never charged. The Lord Chancellor blocked prosecution. The Prince of Wales later wrote to the Prime Minister saying how grateful he was that he was allowed to escape and that he hoped that if he ever returned to the country, he would be left alone. Um, so yeah, so so the, the 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 establishment there kind of gets away with it from a from a legal point of view, from a police point of view. And then what happens is a journalist uh, writing for a radical, sort of radicalish paper called the North London Press, his name is Ernest Park, he decides to pursue the story. So he starts writing about it in the British press, and eventually he names Henry Fitzroy, the Earl of Euston, who had been pointedly f- fingered by, mm. by well, I'm sorry. Strange, so, strange use of uh, terminology there, Stephen. Um, <laughs> Yeah, by one of the one of the boys, mm-hmm. um, Fitzroy then sues for libel. Um, Does he win? Well, so Park, the journalist, gets quite a lot of good evidence in his favour, mm-hmm. but he does win, and and Park is sentenced to a year in prison for <laughs> libel. Like you know, yeah, it was pretty bad. Um, there's another story, which is then that Arthur Newman, who defended New Love and who was Lord Somerset's lawyer is later charged with obstructing justice. He's accused of paying various witnesses to like leave the country, get out, get out, get out and uh, out of the long arm, out of the reach of the long arm of the law, uh, including Hammond who was the the brothel keeper. Um, but he's then in trial defended by another lawyer called Charles Russell, who was the very same lawyer who prosecuted the journalist. So you have like oh, this kind wow. of legal this legal system where the lawyers, the same lawyers, are either trying to like silence um, witnesses, or when they're accused of silencing witnesses, the same lawyer that uh, puts the journalist in prison mm. is then defending uh, the lawyer who's accused of silencing the other witnesses. So there's really like this very transparent closing in. I mean, that's ranks. just a classic cover up. That is an establishment cover up where you've got powerful aristocrats, royalty being accused of something which was illegal at the time, which was, you know, sexual relations between men. You've also got things which I think morally, even in this time, we would go, that's not okay. I mean, sure, the age of consent is 16, but I think we're all pretty confident in saying that sex work by anyone under the age of 18, very, very bad. Um, And you've also got this element of class and exploitation and poverty. I mean, there's so many ingredients to this, which to the modern eye are are still really live issues. So what is the capacity to consent for a young person? What about the you know realities of exploitation in a highly unequal society? Um, you know, to what extent can someone meaningfully consent if they're say 18, but they're a telegraph boy, right? You know, you really are one up from chimney sweep. Um, you know, you're not someone who's got a lot of economic or social power and you have the establishment cover up. Um, it's a story which I feel very few people will have heard of this, you know, Cleveland street brothel, the story of the telegraph boys, but there are so many echoes of it today. I mean, in recent years, you've had an awful lot of revelations about very powerful politicians who, when they were younger and when they were MPs, committed sexual offences against children. So I believe there was Cyril Smith, the MP for Rochdale, 
There was the um, the late Lord Janner, who was an MP for Leicester. And in both cases, the accusations were that they used children's homes as a kind of procuring pool for vulnerable young people. Um, the thing I'm curious about is, you know, there a lot of work went into trying to suppress the story of this Cleveland Street brothel, but how did ordinary people react to it? And do you think that in some ways, when we're reacting to the stories of Lord Janna or Cyril Smith, that there's some kind of echo that's playing in the back of our minds. It's like this forgotten memory that's like exerting a weight on us. Yeah, I think that uh, the Cleveland Street story is a really good case of, I'm not saying it is the origin story, but of a, of a potential origin story for the thought of there being an elite which will abuse and will allow itself to abuse and protect others who conduct the abuse from within that 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 elite and certainly that that was that was how it was characterized by ordinary people writing about it in the press again mostly in the american uh, press who saw it as um really threatening the political and social fabric of the time if if these people within the establishment weren't prosecuted if they were allowed to get away with it then what would result from that. Of course, they never were prosecuted. They did. They were allowed to, to get away with it. They weren't treated um, in with parity with the Telegraph boys or the journalists, for example. Um, so I think there is, yeah, there is something there about about an establishment that protects its protects its own, uh, even when they indulge appetites, and maybe especially when they indulge mm. appetites which are socially absolutely unacceptable, uh, criminal even. Um, I mean, this wasn't that long before the Oscar Wilde trial. So in terms of homophobia being something which is actively pursued by the state, right? You know, they really, really, really want to crack down on same-sex relationships between men. To think that on the one hand, you've got, you know, the prosecution and the imprisonment of one of the most celebrated writers of the day. And on the other hand, you've got the closing of ranks around royalty and aristocracy, that seems like a big old cognitive dissonance. Yeah, I think that one of the... So I don't think the state is interested in pursuing homosexual relationships universally. I, I mean, they're not interested in pursuing the ones that exist in amongst establishment figures or upper-class figures. I mean, homosexuality is something that is practice in the schools that they go mm. to and in the universities that they go to the, all these these all male institutions um it's you know pretty commonplace and it's permitted the way it's characterized in the press in the cleveland street case is not about uh it's not really about um uh, about either the uh, uh, um the take you know taking advantage of people who are are too young perhaps to consent or the the homosexual nature of the relationships it's rather about the question of corruption the establishment corrupting people who are easily corrupted um and i think that that's something that plays out in the oscar wilde case as well there's this sort of him being a corrupting in influence um and you know, and I think I think it is you know it's not that long after this that that case that that case happens. I think there is this atmosphere that's sort of generated by this case and its suppression, which is uh, leads to um, a bigger appetite for for 
for uh, prosecuting for prosecuting these cases. Um, but yeah, the way the way it's the way it's, the way it's really char characterized, I think, in the, in the press at the time, is this thought that corruption kind of flows in the case, in, you know, in the case of same-sex relationships, corruption sort of flows from the establishment into a class mm. which is otherwise uh, not not corrupted by um, homosexuality, or which is policed for homosexuality much more vigorously. I mean, how does that play out? Today, I mean, I know that we're skipping forward in time, but this does feel very relevant, which is the way in which the Philip Schofield and the Hugh Edwards stories have played out. It's been very much about these, you know, powerful, wealthy, older men and younger people. But there are rumors and it's been reported that in the Hugh Edwards case that it might be a young man. So I think that regardless of whether or not we know that for sure, we can say that the story is taking shape as though it is a young man, regardless of whether we know that or not. Um, and that there's something which is borderline criminal and certainly exploitative, wrong, an abuse of power in some way. Um, and I guess I find myself really conflicted in this way because on the one hand, I can see the role of homophobia, that there seems to be a sort of glee in outing or, you know, doing a plausible, deniable outing of, of Hugh Edwards. There are real concerns for me about, you know, sure that an age gap might be legal, but it doesn't mean that there isn't something which is coercive or exploitative embedded within it. Um, you've got the role of privacy going how much of someone's personal life can you drag out into the public sphere and say, this is open for debate. And then you've also got the idea, which is, you know, well, powerful men do abuse their power. You know, we've been talking about formal political institutions so far. We're talking about the media now, and perhaps that says something about the expanded role and power of media in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, but, you know, Jimmy Savile, Harvey Weinstein, hugely powerful media figures. Epstein used their power and their status to abuse people. And in those cases, it was very much over the line into criminality. But here you've got this kind of weird periphery case. And I, I, I sort of don't know how to untangle it. How do you have a conversation which is aware about the role of, you know, ambient and internalized homophobia, but also doesn't let people off the hook for bad behavior because of it. In some cases, it's very difficult to know what's going on. I think in the in the Hugh Edwards case, personally, I find it less difficult to see what's going on. I mean, in that case, it looks like the Sun, over a period of days, reported a story based on, I think, just one source. Mm. So very flimsy reporting. Um, didn't themselves name the person, presumably for the you know the the, the 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 TV presenter, presumably for reasons of potentially committing a libel, um, a defamation, um, and then the young person at the centre of the initial claims comes forward via their lawyer and says, not only is this not true, but I told the son twice that it mm. wasn't true. And they didn't change the story, and they didn't even print the fact that I told them it wasn't true. Um, so, 
then what happens because the media has got into a kind of frenzy and has like ramped itself up and got all the teams together at Sky News or whatever to report on this story, things start coming out about the presenter at the center of this, who later turns out to be Hugh Edwards, his wife, uh, his wife makes a statement um, eventually. Uh, things start coming out, which the media starts turning into a story. And it is like this upside down triangle of desperation as they start pursuing, you know, first one claim by a person met on some apps, then some claims by people working in the BBC about messages being received, so on and so forth. And all of these things seem like the sorts of things that should be handled internally by the BBC. But the media via The Sun has kind of now ramped up into uh, a, a machine which has its own momentum, which is really, I think, from The Sun's point of view, about if it's if it's true that the person, you know, that's been alleged that the, the, the young person or at the center of this is, is is male, about outing somebody and mm. outing and and also creating creating, you know, uh, making an attack on the BBC as an as an institution, as well. So, you know, that's a case where I think um, there is there is there is a question of outing. The Sun has a long history of doing it, um, and. And there are questions about the conduct of the the person of, of, of Hugh Edwards, but they're persons that I'm not. They're, they're questions that I don't think I want to have to answer based mm. on the evidence and the sources that have delivered that ed- evidence and the reasons for why they've delivered that evidence into my consciousness. I mean, that's um, they've done it because of a kind of media hysteria that 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 spun out of a a, a bad story. I couldn't help but feel really sorry for him because I was like. There are things which are leaking out into the public sphere on Twitter, intimate photos, that kind of thing. And I just think, I shouldn't see this. I shouldn't know this about you. And, you know, think about every time you've tried to pull somebody, right? Never happened. Never happened. (laughs) Never happened. I just go back to the monastery and pray. But But think about every time you've tried to do it. Think about the inherent indignity of doing it, right? I'm thinking about every message I've ever sent, every nude I've ever sent, everything I've said to my partner in the privacy of our bedroom. And what would it be like if that was just pulled into the full glare of public attention? It wouldn't matter that everything was lawful, everything was done within the context of consenting relationships, even if it wasn't formal boyfriend, girlfriend, it was within the context of consenting relationships, it would look dreadful. It would make you look like some kind of, you know, nymphomaniac nightmare who can't control themselves because actually sex is the expression of our, you know, most intimate and least socially acceptable so even if you haven't done anything wrong, the fact that everyone's looking at it makes you feel like there's something wrong. Yeah, I think being in the newspapers <laughs> <laughs> always makes it seem like um, there's a story uh, and a story of something having yeah something having been done that shouldn't have been done. And I don't think that that's always the case. I mean, I think the newspapers are not good judges of what is in the public interest. I think they're very good judges of what the public will be interested in knowing. And in general, the public is interested in knowing whatever they put, whatever they present as a story. Um, But that's not the same as 
it's neat, it's deserving to be out there. Um, and yeah, I mean, the horror of that kind of exposure is... It's nightmarish. Yeah, completely nightmarish. Like, I genuinely have nightmares about it. I genuinely have nightmares about an ex or someone like that going like, okay, I can really embarrass her. Bam. Right. And what, what could I do? It's out there. You know, it doesn't matter what you do afterwards. You're, you're exposed. Is it then that the only line that we have for public figures, people who have some kind of power or influence in society, is if they've done something that meets the threshold of criminality? Like, is that the only line? Because I don't think that it is, but I can't think of a better one. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it is. It is the only line. It certainly shouldn't shouldn't be the only line. I mean, I think I think what you're looking for um, are convincing patterns of abusive or manipulative or deceptive behaviour. You know, that might that might be a line where. Um, well, so are we talking about a line where it's where it becomes public, or a line where we're starting to think about um, uh, you know removing someone from the from that that public position? Well, I guess that's almost one and the same, right? right? So when the BBC started, you know, to find itself under attack by the Sun, it was because it was quite obviously to exert pressure to get rid of somebody. Yeah, right. It wasn't just here's the story, goodbye. It was you know, and this is something which needs to have some kind of you know, institutional professional response. So I guess I can't really distinguish between that because it seems that within our current context, it's the same thing. Yeah, that's prob that that's probably right. I mean, I mean, I guess one aspect of the Sun story, which may be correct, is that the BBC didn't operate internally when the parents approached it about their concerns. Um, so it didn't kick in its own mechanisms um, for looking for investigating. Why do you think that the Hugh Edwards story led the papers every day for a week, got the BBC firing up its own live blog against itself, and the Dan Wooten allegations, despite being a bit more lurid, have had comparatively very little attention? I mean, I think it's a really easy answer. Uh, the allegations about Dan Wooten concern a period where he worked at the News of the World, The Sun, and The Daily Mail. So uh, national newspapers, uh, which are very powerful uh, tabloids, which employ techniques we know of coercion uh, with targets of holding information on people um, of uh, threat. And um, it seems to me that, yeah, a good reason for people not to be running this story. I mean, a few papers, a few papers have the Guardian ran it, for in for instance. But um, it's certainly not getting any of the exposure that the Hugh Edwards uh, story got. I mean, Dan Wilton is, of course, also not as high profile as Hugh Edwards, but. As you say, the charges are so much more lurid that you'd think that would be enough to um, elevate them to a larger press. But I think it's because, yeah, they involve somebody who worked for organisations which are now uh, having to uh, investigate themselves and probably don't want to be um, in, you know, have more public exposure than than they already have on this on this on this story. Also, it involves journalists who who may well have participated in not the kind of things that that Wooten is alleged to have participated in, but who have used techniques similar to the ones that Wooten used allegedly in his uh, journalistic career themselves. 
I think this is a really important point about how tabloids have operated in you know the latter half of the 20th century and the early 21st century is that sex scandals aren't just the thing you read in the paper. They're also the material that extracts other kinds of exactly. information that you then read in the paper. The titan of this technique was Max Clifford, the PR guru and later convicted sex offender who used people's sexual information to extract other forms of information out of them. He had a very close relationship with the tabloids. And he's someone who used to boast about his sexual conquest. He ended up being convicted of sexual offenses um, against people as young as 15. And I think that this is a really important point that you're making, which is if you use sexuality to coerce information out of people, it's not a million miles away to think that you use coercion to extract sexual activity out of people. Exactly, exactly. And also, I suppose, if you are the holder of so many secrets, there's a point at which you feel untouchable because you know something about just about everybody who might, you know, uh, mm. accuse you of something. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a sort of sex, sex scandal that we, we didn't dis discuss uh, earlier, but, but it's kind of my favorite one, the one that involves hypocrisy. Mm. Um, and you know, if the Dan Wooten allegations are true, this is a person who has made a career uh, of um, accusing, uh, criticizing, occupying a very unstable moral high ground. Um, and it's very hard not to enjoy the exposure of that if these allegations indeed turn out to be true. I mean, because I think that there'll be some people who aren't so sympathetic towards Navarra, shall we say, who will be watching the show going, well, what do the two of you have to hide? Why are you, you know, being so protective of people's privacy? As I said, card carrying prude here, not much to hide. But the idea that, you know, someone can be interested in privacy as a value without being, you know, degraded themselves seems to be quite alien, you know? Like, I don't have, you know, Skeletons in the closet, just chickpeas, mostly. <laughs> chickpeas and wedding presents. Just, uh, chickpeas and wedding presents. But even if even if I did, like, you know, we're, we're talking about things that shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be considered as excluding you from public life. But to be chief witch finder and to then have a cauldron in your home, yeah, you know, come on. But let's let's take the example of things which are legal, technically legal, but. If any of my friends or loved ones were doing it, I'd be like, what the hell are you doing? So I think this is particularly relevant when it comes to, um, I guess, age gaps, right? And, you know, Twitter at the moment is alight with age gap discourse, sometimes to an absurd extent where they're like, he's 29, she's 26. What? Like, you know, I think we can say that that's silly. But let's say a friend of mine, I'm 31. Let's say a friend of mine who's, you know, the same age as me is going out with a 17-year-old. Technically illegal. Mm -hmm. But if you have to use the word technically, you know that you're on kind right, of exactly. shaky moral ground. Yeah. And I would probably think this is something which isn't right. I don't know necessarily what I would do if I think like they should be like shunned or whatever, but it would be at the very least worth a conversation of going like, this isn't right. What are you doing? What's going on? And let's say, you know, you've got a 31 year old MP and they're dating a 17 year old. Would we go? Yeah, that seems fine. Yeah, and we wouldn't, and we, and I don't think we should. <laughs> that, that's that's fine. Um, I mean, 
But but saying that's not fine doesn't at that point mean that you're going to remove that person from public life, right? You want to know what that 17-year-old's got to say about the relationship that, that they're in. I would want to know what that 17-year-old mm. has to say about the relationship that, that they're in um, before you know, rushing to rush, well, before making a judgment, which probably in most cases would be the right judgment to make, it may, you know, it may well be that in this case there is, I, you know, who knows? I would still be, <laughs> I would still probably be a bit uncomfortable, but I sort of feel like there's a kind of intervention that once one person has made, an intervention that you can't make once one person has said, actually, I want to be in this and I am mature enough to make that decision. Um, you know, whether people want to vote for that MP is another mm. question. And that's fine. Like, obviously, people can say, OK, I'm not, I'm not going to... Maybe MP is a bad example because yeah. they're democratically because they're accountable. Demo- exactly. But exactly. say they are a BBC presenter or say they're a colleague here, right? right? So, you know, say, you know, one day one of our colleagues is like, you know, meet my new partner. I'm just going to pick them up from their sixth form college. You'd be like, what? You know, that. You, you, I think that... Oh, God, yeah. You know, <laughs> you, I think that... But someone has rights as an employee. You know, they've got rights to a private life. They've got rights that, you know, they should be treated as innocent until proven guilty. But, you know, we also know we live in a world where things like coercion, things like grooming, things like having your, you know, decision-making facilities kind of impeded. They're not straightforward. And the law is kind of a blunt instrument as it has to be to protect the innocent, right. but social norms are a lot more complicated. Social norms are, 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 are I think, yeah, very, very complicated. And I mean, yeah, well, I mean, say it was a friend, let's say it was a friend of yeah. yours. What would, what, how would you? I think, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm trying to think about how I'd approach it with, and, and to almost make this fair, because it's easy to go, Imagine it was someone you didn't like very much. You'd be no. like, oh, of course, you'd you know, cut them off. Or whatever. But let's say, let's say it's one of my closest friends. I think that I would really one-on-one be like, what are you doing? You know, and it would maybe probably be less from the perspective of like, this person is being abused because I would feel that I can't intrude onto that territory if I don't know what they've got to say for it. But I would say like you as, you know, a geriatric millennial like myself, like, you know, this shouldn't be what you're doing. You need to be with someone who is, you know, on your level, wants the same things in life, has the same amount of life experience. That means that they can be an equal in the relationship. Um, And, you know, and and I don't think you are. Um, But it's that really difficult space where you go, there isn't something which is, immediately letting me know that there's something criminal going on. And in terms of, you know, quote unquote, safeguarding, safeguarding in terms of um, having a threshold for intervention is a lot lower than a criminal intervention. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, I, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't know. That's my honest answer is that yeah. other than that conversation, I wouldn't know how to handle it. Yeah, I think I would probably be interested in having a similar conversation. And I think what I'd also be interested in pointing out is, you know, a relation, the age gap, a relationship with that kind of age gap, where the one person is, you know, a teenager, uh, and the other is in their thirties. Um, it's not just that the, it's not about just about the age gap. It's about the potential for abuse. Mm. Um, you know, that potential for abuse because of the age gap kind of lessens as both 
you know, the yeah. age gap can remain the same, but the people can get older, yeah, and then yeah. you know, the, the potential for the, the, the same kind of potential, you know, sort of slowly fades away. Um, and yeah, I think it would be being alert and making this person alert to the potential for abuse and keeping and keeping a really close eye on it, yeah. eye on that. That would be um, what I would do. Um, would I stop being friends with them? I sort of feel like that would be a kind of abandonment of the person that they're in the relationship yeah. with. If you just sort of, you know, if if they're only surrounded by other people their own age and they've got this, um, you know, thirty-one-year-old who's. I mean, I think there's also the matter of you know, if we're, if we're moving away from something where we go, we think that there's potential for abuse or a safeguarding issue, and kind of expanding a bit further into the murky waters of sexual morality, yeah. cheating affairs. I don't think that that should on its own exclude someone from public life, to be honest. But it feels that the norms around it have changed a lot in recent years. Um, I remember the sort of like, you know, tabloid bonanza around like David Beckham and Rebecca Luz or Jude Law or, you know, various politicians who were caught out. And that was very much seen as like, you've done something wrong, like get out of here. Whereas now I think that we've, kind of collectively agree that no that's part of your private life and and it ought to be i mean are you someone who looks at them and goes good change i'm glad that we shifted as a society yeah i'm abs- absolutely i mean i'm really not interested in living in um like a prurient society yeah. i'm really not i'm really not interested in knowing that much about people's sex lives one of the things that makes me anxious about like sex scandals is yeah. i find myself having to make judgments about things that i don't particularly want to make judgments about or 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 or, or, or know about um um, or, you know, especially the sort of you know when when they're vaguely reported and things, um, but yeah, I think I think that I think that is a positive move, and I think it's probably a positive move that you know reflects the fact that we all know that. Oh, I'm sorry to say this to you so, <laughs> so quickly after the big event that you know, most marriages. Don't oh, yeah, we are having this conversation like two days after I got married, <laughs> and Stephen's about to tell me everybody cheats. <laughs> We know that most marriages don't make, you know, they don't. They're not from. They're not from the wedding day to the grave. Uh, <laughs> sorry. You know what? This reminds me of the the night before the wedding. We were setting up at my mum's house, and you know, obviously, me and my partner are a bit anxious and making sure the day goes off without a hitch. And I said, um, "Look, don't worry. It's just tomorrow, and then it's just the rest of our lives." And he was like, "Statistically, it's not." And I was like, "Wedding's off, man. Like, cancel the caterer." <laughs> Okay, so you're not a realist about it then? <laughs> uh, no, I said till death do us part, motherfucker. Um, no, 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 but you're totally right to say that most marriages don't work out. And actually, even the ones that do have difficulties of which infidelity may be a part. And in fact, maybe a solution. Mm, well, this is the thing which for me was so interesting about what recently has been going on with Leo Varadka, the um, prime minister of um of Ireland he was you know i think in a way which is a, a quite a gross intrusion of privacy um you know filmed kissing somebody who is not his partner and i think that the papers tried to make a big deal of it and he just weathered it and i think part of the reason why he weathered it is because there is an understanding that open relationships exist and it's none of your business if that's you know the arrangement that a head of government has come to, and that would have been unimaginable ten or fifteen years ago. I think that one of the most amazing things about this is because you, you're right; they try the press try to make that happen, like try to turn it into a you know cheating scandal or something mm. like that. But I think that a lot of straight people now understand that uh, 
gay people, queer people, uh, you know, often have relationships which are liberating in many ways, liberating of the, of, the, of the constraints of traditional heterosexuality. And because they model those relationships and actually live them out in society, they become relationships that are liberating for straight people as well, forms of, mm. forms of relationships that are, are equally, equally liberating. Um, and yeah, so I think really nobody was bothered at all by those pictures. But the media tries to make it, tried to make it happen. And it's partly because I think the media has this, uh, or, you know, and, and also maybe a kind of conservative establishment uh, sort of class has this idea that, you know, homosexuality, queerness, it's allowed to be, to be out and public and even celebrated so long as it's in some way is discreet, and models like heterosexuality. Yeah, you have to look like Martin and Midge from the cul-de-sac exactly. in order to be accepted. Exactly. And yeah, and we can't imagine, we, we shouldn't be forced to imagine you having sex, for example. We should mm. just imagine you like washing up the dishes side by side and <laughs> something like that. Um, and you're allowed companionship, you're not allowed sex. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and, you know, and you see this, and every now and again, the media sort of cooks up some storm, which is... Uh, an expression of its latent homophobia, because what it wants to do is attack is attack gay people or queer people more generally. Uh, so, for example, there, a few years ago, there was like all the chemsex stuff, you know, mm. chemsex parties, chemsex parties, chemsex parties. Um, and again, it didn't really, you know, it had like a moment, but it didn't really land because I think people just don't don't care <laughs> enough about about you know how how how, how queer people live their live live their lives. I mean, some people care a lot, but in general, I think the, that it's less interesting than it might have been, less scandalous than it might have been in the past. Well, I, I think that by and large, that is a shift that's happening. And for me, the Leo Radka thing just was a total, it was a really shocking moment for me to go, this didn't bring down a head of government. Right. I'm glad that I live more in this world than the one from you know, 15, 20 years ago. But I sometimes wonder, with online discourses and people who are the generation below me is that there seems to be a real discomfort with some aspects of public expressions of sexuality. So you've got people saying there shouldn't be any kink at pride because pride should be inclusive to a degree, like all ages inclusive. Um, that's also happening at the same time as there's a real transphobic and queerphobic you know, moral panic when it comes to, you know, grooming. And it seems like a repeat of the Anita Bryant, you know, straight people reproduce, gays recruit, like a real anxiety about, you know, turning turning the children queer. Um, and there's also, you know, not a day goes by uh, that you don't see on Twitter someone saying, I don't like sex scenes because I didn't consent to see this in the movie that's rated 18. Um <laughs> Like, I have not seen this. No, have you not seen that? Okay, well, my brain is so rotted by social media. I see this stuff a lot. Um, discussions of age gaps where we're maybe not talking about something which maybe feels very cut and dry. We're talking about things where the age gap is kind of closer together. Or maybe it's someone who's in their 20s and someone in their 40s where I do just go, that's your business. Like, that's your business. Someone who's in their 20s might not be a wise decision, but it's a decision you're capable of making by and large. Um, do, you, do you have a sense of why this is happening or why, you know, are we returning to this kind of 
prurient and invasive interest into what's going on and we're dressing it up as being protected from a kind of imaginative you know unwanted sexual contact it's hard to say i mean i think it's probably a lot of things going on i mean i think you know it's no bad thing for people in gen z to be considering power dynamics and to be considering you know what you know what consent is and um um what uh you know what things like pride should be i mean the sort of the pride discourse I think just happens every every single year. It's there's always this question about what it's like the Coca Cola advert for Christmas. You're like, ah, right. oh, no kink at Pride, right? Yeah, exactly. It's a, here we go again. It's that time of year. Um, it's um, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with people asking questions about what sh- what who Pride is for and what should be there and what shouldn't be there. Um, I mean, I think like the claims of what is kink are like hugely exaggerated in in this discussion and also its occurrence i think is also often often exaggerated so i think people are calling things kink which aren't in fact kink um mm. and um it's just a leather jacket babe <laughs> exactly it's a cap it's you know, <laughs> um but yeah so i don't so anyway i think that, i think there's nothing wrong with having those conversations i think actually it's good for young people to be having conversations about about consent and what they what they what they're sexually interested in what they aren't i mean you know what Part, I think one interesting that, thing that that's happened is there's, uh, you know, been a resurgence of an idea which I think, you know, is not a new one, but it's sort of come back in in into vogue, where the question is, you know, are my sexual desires my own, or are they mediated by the culture that I'm in, and how do I ident- identify, for example, the sexual desires or the sexual interests which are in fact my own. And I think that's you know extremely good because um, you know it's no 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 question that that desire is not just as it were something that stems you know from within yourself and untouched by the influences political influences prejudicial influences mm. and so on and so forth around you. And so yeah, if young people are asking you know do I want to see this sex scene in a in a film? I mean, seem you know uh, do you know do 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 I consent to for example? You know, may, maybe a better image would be, you know, images that are like quasi-pornographic mm. um, in the public space, selling products. Um, I think these are not not bad questions uh, to be asked. But I think that's very different from what I take to be like a very old slur against queer people. You know, they're coming for your kids. Uh, that's uh, outrageous. It's, uh, you know... Most sexual abusers are straight. Mostly sexual abuse happens in families. Mm. Queer people are not out there looking to recruit kids. (laughs) We don't need to. (laughs) There are plenty. There are, are, you know, we're... we're, There are plenty of adults. (laughs) Exactly. We're we're, we're plentiful as it is. And um, uh, yeah, and we're only interested in adults. (laughs) I mean, I want to lead back to the the beginning of this conversation in order order for us to wrap up. And that's about the sex scandal. I mean, we've covered so much ground. We've gone from ancient Rome to Hugh Edwards to, you know, moral panics. And I suppose the thing that I want to ask is, why do sex scandals still have so much social and political power? Why are we as the public so drawn in by them? Well, because they involve sex, for a start. (laughs) And sex is always interesting and 
So yeah, I guess that's the, 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 the that's the reason why I think the public is drawn in. I mean, as I said before, I can find myself drawn into a story even though I know I don't want to know this this story or I don't think I should know this story. Um, why are they politically powerful? Well, I think that often in order for a sex scandal to be a scandal, it has to involve some feature that reflects what that society is made anxious by. Um, and maybe they're made anxious by it for good for good reason. Like maybe they should be made anxious by it. It's, it's got to be something that, that, that society finds anxi- anxiety in inducing and and which has a, a moral dimension to it, which means that it's got to be it, it it's appropriate for, for sort of discussion and and then becomes like politically important because that discussion inevitably lends towards um, disapprobation lends itself towards disapprobation of the figure involved. Um, so I guess that's where their political power comes from. But I, I suspect that their political power just isn't in general as enduring as it used to be, mm. um, and that's really because of how the media now works. You know, if you're if you're Agrippina, story gets written about you. Nobody else writes a story about you, or they just replicate the story over and over again. Um, if you're Hugh Edwards, you know this week you're in the centre of a sex scandal. Three weeks time. I mean, but how time. will this time be remembered in two thousand years? Right? You know, we're talking about a you know day to day, week to week news cycle where it feels so intense, and then the caravan moves on. And what of it will survive? You know, which of the stories will survive? Will you know? Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky be, you know, remembered the way that we remember the sex scandals of Roman emperors, or would it be a footnote to, you know, something else which is much bigger? Like we've got no way of knowing. I mean, in terms of why I think sex scandals have power, is that I think that it's a very simple story. And the simple story is that there's something going on behind closed doors that's bad and wrong and corrupting, and it needs to be pulled into the light. And that's why sexual libel is so powerful. That's why true sex scandals are so powerful, regardless of whether or not that person has done something which is morally wrong. And it reflects, I think, how far away from power we feel. And that feeling of powerlessness, it can also be manipulated by other powerful people, people who are in the press, people who are of a warring political faction. Um, and we see that, I think, as a kind of common thread from ancient Rome yeah. to the present day. Yeah, absolutely. Stephen, thank you so Ash. much for joining. No, this is amazing. Thanks Hopefully very much. we'll see a lot more of you on this show. I'd love it. Um, where else can people find your work if they want to hang out with you more in a journalistic capacity? Uh, they can watch Navarra Live, where I'm the researcher on the show and help to write the scripts. Um, Your thumbprints are all over it. My, yeah. <laughs> they can uh, check out uh, some TikToks on Navarra's uh, TikTok page. Uh, they can read some articles I've written on uh, navarramedia.com. Uh, yeah, that's that's about it. A few other pieces floating out. Floating and they can out see you at the yearly No Kink at Pride discourse. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Thank you so In much. In my three-piece suit. So no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>